This is a previously recorded episode. This show is broadcasting live from Detroit Sound Studios above Activate Gaming and is part of the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to episode two of the new and improved DetroitSportsRag.com podcast from our beautiful studios in Ferndale. Jeff Moss, joined by normal co-host Justin Spiro. You can follow him on Twitter at Darko State News. What is up, Justin? Well, I think I... I made uh, Matt Derry very proud. I set the record for least amount of show prep in history, but I still feel very prepared despite the formal show prep. My show prep has taken place really the last few days watching some interesting developments with the Detroit Lions, and I could really just look at my Twitter feed the last couple days to prepare myself for this next hour and a half. Yeah, I would would say so. The Benji Bronk showing up at 4.59 p.m. for a 5 o'clock show. Way, way to go. Uh, well, you know, when you get that traffic on I-75, that was worse than even anticipated during rush hour. Sometimes things uh, throw you for a loop. I am here on time, though, to start the show, and that's what matters, and I'm, I'm ready to go. I think we've got a lot to cover today. I think it's a good show. I'm, I'm really excited for it. So today we are going to discuss a myriad of Detroit sports topics the opening will concentrate, unfortunately, on the Detroit Lions and their recent uh, coaching firings. At After that, we're going to talk some Red Wings. Uh, actually, we're going to discuss some hockey analytics, something you and I aren't exactly... I'm a little more familiar with Corsi and some of the possession stats than you are, but uh, it's not. I'm not ex- exactly as well-versed in it as I am uh, baseball. So we're going to have Anthony Ciotti. He's going to discuss some of the uh, unfortunate trends the Red Wings are going through right now. And we're also going to talk about uh, Ken Holland's recent free agent acquisitions over the last five or six years. I think Anthony's prepared a spreadsheet uh, of all those horrid moves. It's almost like there's a curse the two free agent signings this uh, offseason, Mike Green, Brad Richards, 
both off to typical Detroit Red Wing free agency starts. Uh, it's like, almost like a manual. They play awful for about two weeks and then get hurt and end up on injured reserve, and that's what's happened to both of them. So we'll talk that. Ryan Schuling will come up. Uh, he is a um, friend of the show. He hosts a show in Lansing, Michigan on 92.1 FM, and we'll see where that takes us. That should be an interesting discussion. He's uh, kind of been off the air for a few months because of me. <laughs> so we'll talk to him about that if he can. I'm not sure if his attorneys will allow that or not, but we'll see. And then we will wrap up the show. There's a rumor that the Pistons start tonight, uh, this regular season. I so it, does, Those are the games that count t- starting I, tonight, right? I, those, I guess. Those are I, like in the standings. That's That'll go on the guy's basketball card so at like, the end, his the, stats. I think, I think the Pistons have entered witness relocation because – I haven't heard anything about the season really starting. I have, I, I don't even know who's on the team, to tell you the truth. I, I'm so embarrassed, I can't even tell you like their free agent signings. I know there was like a big white guy who can shoot. That's about you know all I know. Uh, Jasper Apollonia, Syracuse uh, broadcasting student, journalism student, will join us to talk about the Pistons and maybe learn me something about this uh, 2015-16 team. He's... He's uh, excited about it. I don't know. I saw and I was reading something that they're over under in Vegas. It's like 33 and a half wins. 33 and a half. And, you know, certainly we're a little bit out of tune with the Pistons relative to the typical NBA fan in town, perhaps. But I will say over 33 and a half seems like a pretty solid bet in Vegas right now with Von D in his second year in Detroit. There's some talented pieces there. The East is fairly weak. So, yeah, I think they're a decent bet to have a cute little season. We'll get into it later. But I'm seeing 38, 39 wins for that club. I could see that. All right. So we'll start off with the Lions. <laughs> and once again, an absolute embarrassment of a game on Sunday that you attended. Yes. Uh, they are now 1-6. They should be 0-7 if not for the absolute coaching malpractice by John Fox uh, last Sunday against the Chicago Bears. They would be 0-7, and you might start really considering uh, the potential of an 0-16 year only because the teams that they were supposed to maybe beat at the end of the year, everyone said, oh, the season gets easier. I don't know. Oakland looked pretty good on Sunday, and so did New Orleans. So that easy schedule that they supposedly had at the back end doesn't look like that anymore. So thanks, John Fox, for ruining that dream. Let's talk about the coaching firings, though. Um, Jim, Cal- uh, Jim Caldwell dismissed uh, Lombardi. Joel Lombardi is the offensive coordinator, and then a couple of offensive coordin- or excuse me, offensive line coaches and other people that we've never heard of. What a tight ends coach or something like that too. Uh, but the, obviously, the one that got all the attention was Joel Lombardi, who was horrible for the year and a half that he was here. Just an absolute joke. Maybe the worst coordinator I've ever seen in Detroit Lions history, and that, like I said, that's saying something. Completely inept. Uh, I think you agree with me. His play calling last year uh, cost the Lions a chance at probably their one chance at a Super Bowl that they've really ever had. They had a dominant defense and an offense that couldn't get out of its own way. Where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the fact that Jim Caldwell at noon for his press conference, said there was no changes on the horizon, and he was evaluating things, and then four hours later, he has another press conference saying that these three people have been fired. Uh, does he think we're idiots? 
Well, aside from the whether he thinks we are idiots or not, what you are looking at is systemic dysfunction of an organization that was similar to what you saw with Michigan football with Brady Hoke and the concussion issue with Shane Morris, him being out there when he shouldn't have been, et cetera. And Brady Hoke's allowed to give a press conference, and then the information is changing, so they basically hung him out to dry. Jim Caldwell, if the decision was made by ownership, which seems apparent to us, or whether it was ownership or Tom Wand or Martin Mayhew, whatever it was, to allow your coach to get up in front of the press and to diffuse the hot rumor that Lombardi might be on his way out as the first domino to fall, and then a couple mere hours later fire the man, that it's organizational dysfunction. Jim Caldwell should have never been up there answering those questions. He wasn't prepared. And, and where is this? Are you telling me that the organization suddenly made the decision to fire Lombardi over coffee sometime between noon and 4 o'clock? I think they probably knew they were headed in that direction. And Caldwell should have either delayed the post-game, pre- uh, not post-game, but the next day's press conference, or simply said that uh, we're evaluating everything, give the generic answer like Avila did with the Tigers. I'm not a, a conspiracy theorist. You know that. Like, Everyone, you know, everyone on the DSR on the Facebook page thinks that the NBA draft is fixed, and that you know the, there's a smoke. You know, the uh, Patrick Ewing frozen. I'm like the one person who doesn't believe that. I'm the like probably in the world. I'm the last person who falls into these conspiracy traps. Um, but how can you not think that this came from either Luand or someone above? Because it just wasn't Caldwell saying that we're not making any moves and this kind of like leaving it at that. Maybe you could say, well, he was just pushing off the reporters for a few hours. He like gave reasons why he wasn't making any changes. Oh, it was definitive. There he, was no you know generic we're evaluating. No, type he, well, he he said why why are you keeping Lombardi? And his answer was, well, we went eleven and five last year and made the playoffs. And there's a history there, so I don't think we need to make a move. It wasn't like just saying, you know, well, we're still... It's ridiculous to think that this was Jim Caldwell's decision. And if it wasn't Jim Caldwell's decision, whose was it? We, we don't, we'll probably never know. It, it's just nothing of the part... None of this makes sense, because even as someone who thinks that Lombardi should have been gone after, like midway through last year when it was evident that he was turning Calvin Johnson into a possession receiver, he was taking all of the strengths of Matthew Stafford and flushing them down the toilet. Uh, You had, like I said, either depending on what metric you want to look at, the first or second best defense in the NFL, led by a maniac who was trying to play for a $140 million contract or whatever Sue thought he was worth. Uh, All of the components were there last year, and you saw it. I didn't really see it, but you saw it and predicted that they were going to win 11 games. And you gave the this franchise's offense, which you put all of these assets, Stafford, Johnson, drafting Ebron with the first-round pick, I can go on and on, and you handed it over to an offensive coordinator who had never run an offense in the NFL in his life. And when you saw things were precipitously falling apart, you do nothing. You come back with the same plan next year, and all so now they're one in six, and they make the decision this week. This is by far the worst week you could have take all seventeen weeks of the season, including the bye. By far the worst time to make this decision. 
you are hours away from getting on an airplane to go to another continent to play a football game when the bye is next week. And Jim Caldwell wants to sell us this bullshit that time was running out and that's why they had to make this move between 12 and 4 when they're gathering their passports to fly to Europe? We're not fucking stupid. This came from above that comatose moron. This is obvious. I don't know if Martha Ford uh, or was told by Luan that they had to do something to appease. I, I don't know. But this was not your decision, and please do not treat us like children. I think there's two things going on here. First of all, you know what, what you had tweeted out something after the announcement came down that this is simple scapegoating, which it is. But I will say, you know, you relate this to people that were defending Brad Austin's with the Tigers this past season and saying you can't blame him. No manager would have won with this personnel and with the injuries and the bullpen, the pitching staff, et cetera, which is true. But you have to look at the failure of the year before. Brad Auspice's failure was when there was an opportunity to win big in 2014. It's exactly the same with Joe Lombardi. Joe Lombardi was so bad last season. People talk about how good the Lions defense was last season in context of the season. There was an article, I think it was uh, Pro Football Weekly or Pro Football Focus, one of those articles that said the Detroit Lions, according to multiple statistical models, were the sixth best defense in the history of the National Football League. In recorded history of the National Football League, they had one of the best defenses ever. And against the run, it was like second best ever. So you have a guy at quarterback who is we, we know is capable of great things. We saw a season where he threw 41 touchdowns and 16 interceptions and was a statistical monster that year. And has had other years where he was pretty pretty good. Uh, you know, gone to waste. The talent's there. It's not like he's 37 at the time. Last season, he was 26. The, the waste of last season was the tragedy here. So, yeah, I think we can all agree that he was scapegoated this season, and this season was lost regardless of Joe Lombardi. And I think he was a big part of the problem, but I don't think he was the entire problem. I think the blame ultimately lies with upper management for the roster that's been assembled. Katzenstein had a great article today talking about the dead money with this franchise, how it's right up there at the top of the league, and every other team at the top is having these similar struggles. This team has been mismanaged. But Joe Lombardi's biggest sin occurred last year, and the fact that they didn't fire him last year when something was actually correctable by firing him is the biggest mistake and the biggest sin here. Now who cares? It doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, they're 1-6. in Most fans who have a brain want him to keep losing just to get a a high pick, and maybe the turmoil will cause, finally, a management change of some sort. It, it, it's This is such an unusual situation because they're just so awful at every level, from Luan to Mayhew, and you look at his drafts over the last few years. Uh, I mean, that's the smoking gun of why this team is 1-6. I mean, as bad as Caldwell is, like you said, with the Osmus thing, I mean, there's just not a lot of talent there. No. And especially on the offensive line, which is just getting... Stafford's lucky, lucky that he hasn't been knocked out for the season. I mean, he's taken so many hits. He was considered injury-prone early in his career. You know, he, he missed almost an entire season and a large part of another. Two of his first three years, he was injury-riddled. 
I mean, it's incredible. I agree. I, the fact that he hasn't been broken in half. And, of course, Mitch Album was happy to make that point. Mitch Album has written two articles in the last 24 hours, two articles since we addressed this last week and you addressed it in print. Mitch Album is, you know, he's not even wrong to absolve Stafford this time. You know, I, right. I, I tweet that. He's actually right. But the constant stream of defense of when are the Lions going to help Stafford, that's a whole other subject. But Mitch Album continues that train. But I think, you know. Well, what are they going to help? I mean, they've, they've tried to help him for years. I mean, th- yeah, this year. They're spending I, the resources. They're just making bad decisions. You're looking at what, where is the money really gone and where is, the, where is the investment gone, where is the draft gone. It's gone in offensive linemen and skill position players. Golden Tate is a free agent. Lakin Tomlinson, Riley Reef, Swanson is a third-round pick. They've been, they're, they're, they're putting the resources there. They're just picking the wrong guys. Now Tate was a good signing. The crazy thing was, and this, I, you know, I'm not exactly an expert on offensive line schemes. I mean, I watch the games. I, you know, I, I'm not... I'm not breaking down tape over at my house, you know. But it, it's just incredible that after all of this time, uh, let's see, seven, you know, 17 games last year and then six this year going into Sunday, where fans were basically begging the guy, look, you know you've got no running game. Your running backs aren't very good. The offensive line, if they can do anything, it's blocked for passing, not really running at all, opening up any lanes. They come out on Sunday – and it seems like he finally understood that you've got to throw the ball downfield to open up any sort of run game at all. And they come out, and they look great on their first few possessions. They're up, what, 14-3? to Yeah, I mean, they scored. Their opening drive touchdown was scored in about three and a half minutes, and then the second touchdown drive was about five. I mean, it was, they, they didn't... Doing everything that everyone had wanted... Lombardi to do since the season began last year. And they didn't see their opening drive. They didn't see a third down. I mean, I was with a good DSR contributor, Jamie Gorman, and he said that, I mean, there was no resistance on that drive. Eight yards, 12 yards, 35 yards, eight yards, six yards, 12 yards, touchdown. I mean, it was right down the field. It's it's absolutely baffling to me that you could be that efficient for the first few drives, and then after that, for like the next two and a half quarters, have a grand total of five offensive yards, is which what they had. Like, obviously Minnesota's defensive coordinator and their and their coaching staff makes adjustments. Was is was Lombardi that bad that Minnesota makes these adjustments where they go from looking like you know Tech Mobile offense, looking like the nineteen uh, excuse me the eighties forty ers going down the field left and right. Minnesota makes a few changes on their defense and now Stafford doesn't even have three seconds to pass they can't they can't get a first down for quarters at a time I mean it was I've never seen anything like it and the adjustment it wasn't anything Belichickian it was actually fairly simple they just started blitzing Stafford and the adjustment to a blitz and no we're not strategic geniuses but it's pretty simple the adjustment to a team that's blitzing is quick developing routes quick slants you have a running back available for a quick screen to dump it off to and then they run for six eight yards if they don't even break a tackle so but that wasn't done and so they came out throwing deep and then basically Minnesota said we're going to blitz and we're going to take away the deep pass we're not going to give your receivers time to get downfield Stafford had no time and there was no adjustment what it were they doing play after play if anyone were bored enough to bring up the film the amount of play action slow developing passes that Lombardi dialed up in that second half was embarrassing how many times did Stafford have his back turned to the line on a play action fake and by the time he turned around before he had time to even consider the thought of making a single read or two 
he was already on the ground being hit. I mean, it's just it, there was no time. Every play was slow developing from that point. And okay, you know, that's okay for a driver too. That's going to happen. You you and then you adjust back, but no adjustment back was really made. They just kept trying the same thing over and over and over again. And, you know, you look at, once again, I, I've never seen anything like it for all the years of the bad Lions coaching, where you have one of the best defensive players on the Vikings, Chad Greenway, very successful linebacker, great resume, comes out and says, we figured out in about the second quarter what they were doing on offense. We were good the rest of the way. This is yet another week where a, an opposing defensive player went on the record this isn't just trash talk on the field. This guy got in front of a mic. Again, this is yet another that got in front of a mic and said, oh, yeah, we knew it was coming. I mean, you know, this, this, this offense has been so predictable. And I tweeted after the game. I said, how many weeks in a row are these opposing defensive players going to come out? Or even our own players, Golden Tate, come out and say that this offense is predictable before something is done? Sure enough, fewer than 24 hours later, the move was made. But it just reached a breaking point where not only is the performance bad, but you're literally being shamed publicly in, in the press by your own players, by the opposing players. It becomes just an embarrassment, similar to what you saw when Bill Ford Jr. finally said, you know, we're going to go out and I basically have to publicly humiliate my father to get Millen out of here. The Lions need to – they don't wait for poor performance to make changes. They wait to be a complete folly, a complete embarrassment, a public shame to make any type of moves, and I think that's what took place here. And we'll get to that, the new offensive coordinator and his past in about a, two minutes. But the one thing I want to touch on, which I mentioned on um, my spot on 92.1 uh, yesterday, the fourth quarter, to me – the Lions had quit, the coaching staff. Uh, it looked for a time with about 10 minutes to go in the fourth quarter that Matthew Stafford had a hand injury and he was going to come out of the game. And it looked like Orlovsky was going to enter. And then Stafford comes in, and it, it seemed like they knew that he couldn't throw the ball downfield. The Lions off, you know, Lombardi knew that. And they're just running the ball. Just Run. They're down by 11 points with like 10 minutes to go in a game that they absolutely have to win. They're 1-5 at home. They have to win this game if they want to get any traction whatsoever. And on 3rd and 13, they're doing sweeps to Riddick. They had capitulated. They had quit. The only reason that anything occurred later in the game, as I said on the radio, was that you know Minnesota was just, they were just not going to give up a big play, even though Stafford looked like he couldn't throw the ball downfield. So they gave up a couple big plays uh, on offense uh, on, to uh, the Lions' offense on screen plays, which I don't know. That's the one thing the Lions could have done. Did you get the sense that they were just they just given up and were waving the white flag in the last you know nine ten minutes of that game? I got more of that sense during the Arizona game where you saw guys with their heads down. You, you notice more body language that was poor in the Cardinals game, but they certainly weren't flying to the ball. It seemed like they had been maybe not quitting as much as resigned to their fate. Now, you want to talk about scapegoating with this offense. What did Joe Lombardi do so much worse this year from last year? Really nothing. You look at the points per game. People don't think about this. The points per game for the Lions in 2014 when they went 11-5 and and really probably should have won a playoff game was 20.1 points per game. That's just offensive output, 20.1. This year to this point, 19.9. Two-tenths of one-point difference from this year to last year. 
this offense isn't worse than they were last year. It's about almost identical. I mean, not, not even half of half of one point. You're talking about less than a quarter of a point per game difference. Offensive output from this year to last year. This Lombardi didn't get any better or worse. This is what we had last year, and it's interesting to see him get fired now. Why didn't he get fired last year? It's literally the same, the same problem. And right, and that's what I said, and that was the point I made in the offseason to Dave Burkett when someone would ask him, you know, are Mayhew and Caldwell going to be on the hot seat because of, you know, they lost Sue. And it's like, oh, no, they, what do you mean? They went 11-5. and five. The, the, uh, the lack of ability of people in this town, and I guess it's probably prevalent all over the place, not to see the forest for the trees, to only be able to see record. You could see last year Caldwell was not a very good NFL head coach. You could see that in his in-game decisions, I mean, you don't. You can. You go back to this. This guy would never have got. In my opinion, he never would have got another NFL head coaching job if it wasn't for the Lions coming in to save the day for this guy. He was on the verge of getting fired by Baltimore as their offensive coordinator, a job he obviously doesn't want because you can see here he kept saying, "I was never taking over the play calling" because he doesn't want to do that. That's not. That's not him. He was forced into a situation in Baltimore um, because they're you know, and, and and he didn't want to do it again. It's clear. The guy's never getting a co- head coaching job in the NFL after he, the Lions eventually fire him. It, he's, he's a joke. He's a national joke. Bill Simmons. I know we both have our issues with Bill Simmons, but he's not wrong. He saw it firsthand as a New England fan well, when he was with Indianapolis. This guy is not good. Yeah, he's calm. So is, his, you know, so is taking a Xanax. I mean... This he, he he it's just an embarrassment that this is the guy that they went and hired after they fired Schwartz. And we said it at the time, if it was gonna be Caldwell or Schwartz, it was kinda of like the Garden Hire Osmus stuff. Like if you're gonna fire Osmus for Garden Hire, just keep Osmus. And I had the same opinion as much as I disliked Schwartz at the end. If it was gonna be Schwartz or Caldwell it was a no brainer. And I think you're seeing that now, and now they're promoting this guy who's the savior, who's been working with Matthew Stafford, and they've got a synergy, just like Martin Mayhew and Tom Luan said they had a synergy back in 2007 or whenever they or eight, whenever they got the job from Matt Millen. This guy is an embarrassment. I mean, as late as 2009, wasn't that when he was crawling into women's? Yep, 2009. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You know, and. and it's again. You want to talk about the word embarrassment in relation, in relation to this franchise. This is a team that hired a guy with no experience to run an offense last season when the defense was loaded and the offense, presumably in terms of on paper, was loaded. You had two very good receivers. I would argue uh, one and a half elite receivers. You had a first overall pick quarterback, clearly talented. You had a few offensive pieces uh, along the line that were solid. And they turn over the keys to Joe Lombardi, who quickly showed that he had no ingenuity, had no uh, ability to do his job on a high level, and refused to make that correction while the season was still salvageable. And it ended up costing them in the end as the offense struggled down the stretch in the playoffs. And honestly, that team really could have very easily been 12-4 and and 13-3. and People say that season was a fluke last year. No, it wasn't a fluke. They had one of the best defenses in the history of the NFL 
that was a good team. The offense stunk. And that was a legitimately good team uh, in a vacuum. Didn't mean the franchise was necessarily heading in the right direction. This is what happens when you put all your chips to the middle, theoretically. Although we're, we're now, we're, you had a great point on Twitter yesterday. You had made a, uh, a great uh, comment. The Lions now have employed more coaches who have been arrested for being naked in the last 40 years or 50 years than they have playoff victories. Between Cullen and his driving through Wendy's naked, uh, ordering a cheeseburger, yep. and mean, now I mean, Jim Bob Cooter, who, you know, all of the stories kind of just tell what happened, how he just showed up, went, crawled through some woman's window and got into bed with her naked. There's like... Where what what ended up happening with that case? Do you even know where did that go? Uh, I, you know, according to the articles that are out there, he was charged, and there was some type of. I mean, he wasn't convicted of anything. Right. He was charged, and there was some type of of settlement outside of court. The guy's got a drunk driving charge, and I'm guessing if he accidentally crawled into some woman's uh, apartment and got into bed naked with her, that I'm, I'm hoping liquor was involved in that case also but we're not talking ancient history like you said it was 2009 and this is the guy who is now the savior for the lions offense you know and it's interesting because when you see guys with baggage you see somebody like bobby petrino getting jobs over and over again in college despite baggage and rick patino's had some baggage over the years and you see john calipari has left two programs in ruin and he keeps getting work why because they're good they're effective and teams basically say they're worth the risk you're seeing it now with greg hardy on the field in dallas this guy isn't worth the risk why, what has Jim Bob Cooter proven, nothing, to suggest that he's worth taking a, a character risk like this and putting him in a significant position? An offensive coordinator in the NFL is a better position than about 98% of the jobs in college. I mean, this is not a, a small gig. This is not a special teams offensive quality control assistant. No, it's, I, I it's, mean, a, leap, it's a leaping point to a head coaching that's job correct. usually. And but, it's, it's a high-profile job, and this is not a guy you take that character risk on. You, maybe you take that risk on an established guy who's a big winner, who's a sharp mind. This is a team. Uh, did they even know that these things took place? They had to know. I mean, you. Uh, they knew. I'm sure they did, but, uh, I mean, it's almost... I, I guess I would make it The worse. president of the team why, why is should have been fired for his embarrassing the organization with his drunk driving, which was on, caught on video and lying to cops about taking breath mints. I mean, it's just, in this day and age, obviously they knew. And I guess they're just That's saying, worse, you know. The, the, the knowing and not caring, I, you know, again, why take that risk? If you're going to install someone as an offensive coordinator, first of all, Caldwell should take the job himself. Now, you've covered that. He doesn't want to do it. Caldwell should take that job himself. It's almost well, he, like at this yeah, point, but he was going to get fired because they had one of the worst offenses in the league last year or two years ago. If I'm Jim Caldwell, if I have any faith in my coaching ability, I want to control my own fate. The offense has been once again a significant problem. Probably, I would say the biggest problem. I don't think the defense has been has been porous. And Jim Caldwell is coaching for his job right now. I know there's a sentiment out there that 11 and five has earned him at least three or four years. I felt that way even a few weeks ago. I'm not so sure now. If this team goes 2-14, and 3-13, and 13, I think he's out of here. And if I'm Jim Caldwell, this is my last shot at this job. I'm giving that very significant responsibility of calling the offensive plays to myself and taking control of my own fate. What has Jim Bob Cooter shown? We don't, I mean, he, he might be good, but again, we don't know. Well, I'm guessing Caldwell him. thinks it's, in, it's all in God's hands anyway. Well, so that's true. Whatever's so. going to happen is going to happen. Yeah. So. yeah. All right, we'll we'll we'll, talk, we'll get back to the Lions a little. I think when we talk to Shuling after six o'clock, but uh, we're going to take a break. 
When we come back, we'll have Anthony Ciotti in to break down the Detroit Red Wings' recent free agent moves and some unsettling advanced metrics regarding the team through eight games. So we will be back. Um, And uh, thank you for listening so far. This is a previously recorded episode. We are back on the DSR podcast, episode number two. Jeff Moss joined by DSR's number two, Justin Spiro. Just got done talking some Lions uh, football. We haven't really you know, spoken much about the Red Wings on the podcast recently, either here or the ones we were doing on Blog Talk. And since they're the only team... Probably, well, we don't know what the Pistons are going to do, but team that has any real hopes of making any long playoff runs, maybe we should focus some time on the Detroit Red Wings. They play the Carolina Hurricanes this evening. We are going to be joined by Anthony Ciotti. I hope that's how you pronounce his name. A Red Wings fan who is deep. Sorry to interrupt. I was going to say very gifted goaltender for the Andrew Single Memorial Cup as well. He, oh, re- oh, really? Yeah, he was. Uh, oh, so you've he, met him? Yeah, I've met him. He's a really good guy. A very sharp hockey mind. You there, Anthony? I am. Thanks okay. a lot. Uh, I appreciate the introduction. Yeah, we were giving you a big introduction here. Are, you're, you are going to be, you and Topher Ryan, who we still think might be Greg Brady uh, in disguise, since no one's ever seen him, uh, a picture of him, or talked to him on the phone. We've known what? How long have we known Topher for? Like on the website, like a couple of years, yeah, at least two or three years. <laughs> Nobody yeah. know. Uh, the, all we know about him is he loves Greg Brady, which makes me think that he is Greg Brady. So we, we'll get him on at some point. Uh, he probably has to go out to Radio Shack if they're still in business and get one of those alter, voice alterers to make phone calls. But so we're going to talk to Anthony t- tonight about a couple things. Um, we want to talk about hockey analytics, but I think we want to start with Ken Holland. Um, who in this town is looked upon by, I would say, the mainstream media as some sort of messiah. A couple of years ago, or actually now it's been more than a few years now, um, Jamie Samuelson wrote an article in the Free Press when Matt Millen was on his last days that the, the legitimate article saying that the Detroit Lions should consider hiring Ken Holland as a general manager of the Lions. A dead serious take. Uh, no, it wasn't hyperbolic. It wasn't uh, tongue in cheek. He was serious that Ken Holland should, you know, run the uh, Detroit Lions. Let's talk about the free agency signings of Ken Holland over the last few years. I know Anthony's been running a uh, Excel spreadsheet updating these moves over the last few years. How, how far have you gone back, Anthony? Uh, I think you're giving me just too much credit because it's just a text file. So uh, I <laughs> go, go with uh, it. Go with it. Um, but I'm going back to I think when the uh, real uh, kind of shift in the Red Wings uh, started was after the 08-09 season when they lost to Pittsburgh and they made the uh, decision to let Marion Hessel walk and uh, re-sign Johan Franz. And so I think that was kind of like a, a high watermark for the Red Wings. Um, the 07-08 team was basically the best team in the analytic era. Um, 08-09 was pretty good, and I think the 11-12 team was also very good. That was Lidstrom's last year. Um, but I kind of focused on um, the uh, the kind of the, the day uh, that they left Hostel Walk, I think, as kind of the transition uh, in the franchise, because I think that was a big uh, big deal. Obviously, Hostel is still very good, 
Uh, he's killing penalties heavily in the playoffs last year as a 35-year-old. Uh, still very effective. Um, he's had a great, uh, great career. I mean, he's a surefire Hall of Famer. So. Right, and the Wings, um, and the Wings, was, Wings chose to re-sign Franzen instead of Hosa. And then, so what were the moves going forward from that point? Can you just list off the signings one by one, and maybe we can, Spiro and I can comment on those? Oh man, uh, I'm not going to be able to get through this without crying. But uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, Miller, well, so they got Miller from Tampa Bay off waivers uh, in that fall. Um, they cut Brad May, um, Todd Bertuzzi, Jason Williams, Patrick Eves, and Doug Janik. Um, kind of uh, at the beginning of the 09 season, so Miller was after the season started. So it was mostly Bertuzzi, Williams, Eves, and Janik uh, for 09. Okay, um, I think Bertuzzi ended up being pretty decent for the Wings. Williams didn't really last. Eves was a good fourth liner for a while. Uh, Janik didn't really do much. Um, but that was their 2009 class. Okay, 2010? Uh, Madonna, Ruslan Soleil, and uh, Joey McDonald. Ah, one of those guys is dead. <laughs> Blight <laughs> was actually really good uh, in his prime. He was actually pretty good for the Red Wings as well. Um, Madonna obviously got hurt. Didn't his, uh, his wrist got cut by a skate or something like that? Yeah. Uh, you know, so that they have, they, there's kind of a common theme here where they sign guys who are, you know, over 35, trying to get one or two more good years out of them. You know, they do it with Madonna, Alfredson. They're doing it right now with Richards. Uh, so uh, that's kind of a common theme we've seen since about that time. And then 2011? Um, 2011 was um, Commodore, uh, Ian White, after Rafalski retired, I believe, uh, Chris Connor, and uh, Ty Conklin. Okay. Uh, so Conklin, yeah. was, you know, I mean, Conklin was serviceable, yeah. but yeah. the rest is a disaster. Yeah. Other, yeah. Than, other than we've gotten a lot of entertainment out of Mike Commodore's Twitter account because of his short stay in Detroit with Mike Babcock. But other than that, um, another stellar uh, free agent crop from uh, Ken Holland. And then 2012, which I think I'm going to hide under the table for this one. Uh, yeah, so this is kind of like the anti-1989 draft. I would like <laughs> the complete opposite of the 89 draft. Um, it's uh, Michael Samuelson, Damian Bruner, uh, Jordan Tutu, uh, Jonas Gustafson, and uh, Carlo Koliakova was kind of near the, uh, right before the beginning of the season, like during training camp. Yeah, and how many of those uh, guys do they have to use the buyout for eventually? Uh, they bought out Tutu and Koyakovo. Uh, right. And they shouldn't have used the buyout for either of them. They were making, I mean, yeah, obviously Tutu is making ridiculous money. The guy had just come off a series in against the Wings in the playoffs, against you know Nashville against the Red Wings, where he couldn't even get out of the press box. And the Red Wings went and gave the guy three years, I think, what, 1.7 a year or something? I think it was a three or six million dollar deal. I could be wrong. Somewhere, somewhere around that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It, it was insane. I mean, that, that free agent class really cost them probably, you know, a, a chance at the cup the following year because wasn't that the, that year the, the loss to Chicago? I believe so. That was the year after. Um, Rafalski retired, or I'm sorry, Lister retired. So he retired in uh, May of 2012. So this would be right after that. And yeah. then, yeah, they take Chicago to break there, right? Right. And, yeah. and, and, and the free agents that they signed that year, Ken Holland, were, you know, what you just said, Samuelson, who was horrible. Uh, he was injury prone. He wasn't good the previous year, and we, you knew his injury history. Tutu, who 
in a game where fighting has kind of been removed and a team that's never really fought that much in the first place, they gave all that money to him. It was just, and, and I think that was a year also that they, they let Hoodler go. Yeah, so they basically backfilled Hoodler with uh, Samuelson when they had um, Nyquist already, which was, that was the biggest problem I had. Is, again, it's one thing to let Hoodler walk. Um, he's obviously been good with Calgary, but I think his skill set's somewhat replaceable. Uh, Nyquist has done a good job, I mean, uh, doing that. He was much younger at the time, but right. uh, I don't know if they really needed to spend that kind of money on Sanderson uh, to basically play third line. And they also had um, Tatar, that, who was playing, I think, his uh, 700th game in the AHL, scoring, what, 47 goals in the playoffs for the Griffins the year they won the uh, Calder Cup, and they never called him up when they needed some scoring that year. So what was the following year, the 2013 crop? Uh, okay, so um, this one's kind of spread out because they did sign a couple guys in the middle of the year. But uh, the offseason was Alfredson, Stephen Weiss, and uh, Luke Lundenning. So Lundenning was basically like a tryout unit you know, to make him a team. Um, before that, um, in, uh, like before the, the, you know, the previous season, 2012-2013, they had signed uh, Ken Huskins in the middle of the year. Uh, and then they signed De- De Kaiser out of college after Western season ended. So the offseason, you know, uh, was Glenn Denning, Weiss, and Alfredson, basically. Right, which was Alfredson, another guy who was over 40 years old who eventually got hurt. Um, and DeKaiser, I mean, DeKaiser was because he was friends with Jim, the family was friends with Jim Nill's family, and Jim Nill was still with the Wings at the time. So I'm not sure. And I think, I think that was a big reason they made the playoffs that season. Like, DeKaiser stepped in and ended up being a really big contributor down the stretch. Uh, it was only for like the last few games and into the playoffs, but I mean, they were really like right on the edge. Uh, most people don't know um, the last three full seasons they've played three regular season games, having already punched a playoff spot. So they've they've been making it by the skin of their teeth, right? Um, the last three years. So and that, then, um, I think the Kaiser really helped. So then we had 2014. Uh, they actually didn't sign anyone that year. And then this year they went and got uh, Brad Richards and Mike Green, and as we were talking right before you came on, it's almost like the the exact M.O. for almost every free agent sign that you just listed over the last few years by Ken Holland, who, like I said, in this town, he's still considered some sort of you know guru genius, even with you've got just an absolute embarrassment of free agent signings for a team that has you know still has a window. I mean, they've got two of the two of the better uh, forwards in the NHL, even though they're getting older. And Datsuk and Zetterberg, over you know, we're talking about going back since two thousand and nine, uh, five or six years, where you were hoping to get maybe one more real good run out of those two. And he's making these just horrific signings leading into this season, where he went and got Brad Richards for I don't think you and I have any idea why. Um, and you can talk about his stats last year in Chicago and the breakdown of that. I don't think anyone really had a big problem with Mike Green other than I think you and I and some other Red Wing fans thought he was probably more of a, you know, four or five or, you know, answer, not, you know, one or two, which I think they were trying to sell Red Wing fans on. But the same things happened to them. They started off poorly. They looked bad. And now they're both on injured reserve, uh, just like Weiss and just like Samuelson and just like a lot of guys over the last few years. What was your concern with the Richards signing? Why don't you, why don't you lay that out a little? So, uh, you know, Richards has been a really good player. I mean, he's uh, really great with Tampa Bay, and he's kind of near the end of his career. I think he's 35. 
Uh, my concern was that um, he was pretty productive with Patrick Kane, but like Patrick Kane was his most common linemate last year. And um, uh, so my my main concern was that like, he was he only had 30 points, I believe, even strength, 17 with Kane in 500 minutes, which is a pretty decent rate. Uh, but that's with Patrick Kane. So when they're expecting him to come here and play with, um, you know, obviously Tatar is good, Nyquist is good, but, I mean, they're definitely not as good as Patrick Kane. He's a year older. Uh, when you sign guys like that, you know, they could fall off at any time. Uh, injury is more of a concern. And a big part of the problem I had was, um, so what we're trying to do, I think, and the, the obvious thing is um, they want to move Zetterberg to the wing because uh, he's getting older. Um, he's carried a lot of defensive load the last few years. I and mean, it makes sense for him to play with Dapsuk at some point as they get older. I mean, they're still very effective together. They're all, they've always been very good together. Um, and then, but so, so they really needed a second-line center. And I think that's what they were trying to do with uh, Stephen Weiss. Uh, I think they got bad luck with Weiss. Um, he was good with Florida. He got hurt. Uh, it was a core injury, like a oblique slash groin. Those take forever to heal. I mean, those are basically two-year injuries we saw with Cabrera and uh, Verlander, and those guys aren't doing the kind of the torques that uh, hockey requires uh, right. on the core. So, so they got unlucky with White um, to replace uh, second line, you know, to have ask Richard to play second line center at this stage, um, I think it's a big risk. Big risk. Uh, you know, and three million is okay, I guess. Um, one year is fine. Uh, but I mean, overall, I thought it was a little bit, um, you know, the high risk thing with kind of not really a great reward. So we're talking about a team now that after eight games is four, three, and one. And your point on Twitter over the last week or so has been that they're not as good as that record. Um, they got off to a good start 3-0, and and then they uh, lost uh, three in a row in regulation, then lost, uh, what, a game in, in, in the, the game in the last minute to Calgary, and then in overtime, and then they miraculously won on Saturday against Vancouver in a game that Mrazek absolutely stole, basically in the net and as a playmaker uh, in overtime. There's an article on TSN today, uh, Travis Yost, about the team's possession rate. And there's a graph, and it looks like a dying person, basically, starting starting in 2007, and it looks like they they flatlined. Uh, Why why don't you explain kind of what that's all about? And uh, I think they're the second-worst team in possession, with possession rate this year and that's been the staple for you know going back to you know the russian five and you know ever since they, this playoff streak has started yeah so um it's kind of troubling because this is the they showed that graph is actually a rolling eight game average so this is the worst eight game stretch they've had since a lot of those stats started getting uh kept track of i believe oh seven uh, right. so this is the worst they've been in that time over eight games um, I've, I've kind of taken it a step farther uh, and been kind of tweeting out this one guy. His name is uh, DTM about heart. Um, I can send you all this afterwards, but um, he's, he's taken it a step farther and looked at expected goal on uh, for and against, uh, which takes the possession and mixes it with um, heat chart, heat maps from uh, shot shot attempts. So uh, basically, every day he'll tweet out uh, where all the shots come from in the game, uh, goals, you know, goals and missed goals, all that stuff. Uh, and then there's a calculation that he uses based on how far away the shots were from, um, you know, were they coming off a pass, off of a rebound, uh, situational stuff. And so there's an algorithm. Um, I think he's still refining it, but essentially uh, Detroit is dead last in the league 
um, an expected goal differential. So, you know, in basic possession, um, which is a traditional way of tracking, uh, you know, probability of success, Detroit is 29th right now, but in uh, expected goals, they're 30th, which is really concerning. They're dead last in expected, expected goals for, and they are second to last only to Winnipeg in expected goals against, so their differential is uh, pretty vast. Uh, in reality, they're uh, dead even on goals for and goals against at even strength. Um, so that means that they're one of the luckiest teams in the league. And I think that um, uh, there's only two or three teams that are luckier than they are. So they're dead last and one of the luckiest teams in the league right now, uh, which is really troubling. Um, if you're not all about looking at the stats and the numbers, um, you know, because I don't always believe everything that I'm seeing. Um, I have been watching the team also. <laughs> Uh, which the eye test has not been very kind to them as well, and I think I mean you probably agree with that. No, I mean I definitely agree with that. They they've stole at least two games out of the first eight. They played horrible against Carolina in that first game a couple Saturdays ago, and they were lucky as hell to come out of that with a win. The game on Saturday against Vancouver, I, I don't think you would disagree. They probably should have been down five nothing if it wasn't for Mrazek. And oh my gosh, yeah. I mean that that was that was un- unreal, and the fact that he wasn't the number one star in that game was <laughs> was hysterical. But um, eight games—it's not exactly a huge sample size. It's about you know ten percent of the season. It seems like to me that, and basically, I think Yost agrees in his uh, in his article that it's not the young players who are the reason for this lack of puck possession. They're advanced stats. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not as versed in it as you are. Are pretty good, you know, Larkin, Pulkin, and some of the other younger kids. It, oh, it, this has got to be the, the horrific defense that uh, Holland has created. Uh, wouldn't you agree? I think it's I think it's a combination of a couple things. So um, they've been a little bit unlucky with injuries. They're the most injured team in the NHL, and I mean Franz and counts in that. So I don't really I take a look that with a little bit of uh, salt. Although if you take Franzen out, they're still like the second or third most injured team as far as man games lost and uh, salary lost. Uh, Dapsuk's a big part. Um, I do think uh, that Babcock, uh, missing Babcock, and that's part of the, uh, uh, you know, kind of the foundation of the article that Joe wrote, is that um, going from Babcock to Blaschel has kind of been a little bit greater than anticipated. Um, Babcock's also made Toronto, right now Toronto's fifth in the league, fifth in the league in expected goal differential. So they went from, I think, near the bottom five last year to fifth right now. Uh, so he's turned them around. The Wings have plummeted. Um, I don't think it's all Blashill. He's obviously got a great track record. He was very good in college at Western Michigan. Um, he's done very well at Grand Rapids. So there's no reason to think that he's not going to be a good NHL coach. I think, uh, watching a little bit more closely, um, Babcock had done a couple things the last uh last couple seasons to really take the weight off the defense. Um, I think I, I do agree with you. The defense is definitely the weak spot. Um, one thing that really troubles me, it's kind of an aside, but they're spending the sixth highest percentage of the cap on defense in the entire league. So they've got a lot of money tied up in these defensemen. Wow. That's, and, um, that's, that's, that's crazy. I haven't seen you tweet that out. I didn't, I had no idea. No. You'd think if you were spending the sixth, sixth most amount on defense in the league, you'd have at least a top half of the league, you know, blue line. And, th- and and the fact that it's kind of you know, a mess, that that that's show just shows you how much Holland, I think you'd agree, has overpaid for guys like Erickson, Quincy, um 
and we can go we can go down the list. But you got a question? You got a question, yeah, Justin? I, I want to ask Anthony. You know, we can get into the numbers and we can crunch them, and you know, we've all acknowledged that the sample size is small. Big picture here, you know, let's say the Wings don't add anybody at the deadline. What's the ceiling for this team with what you're seeing right now? So, I mean, even with Babcock, who's one of the better coaches in the league, um, even without the transition to coaching like last year, I didn't think they could win the Cup. I mean, being in the playoffs is a different animal. You have to win four playoff series against four pretty good teams. You might get lucky and draw like Calgary if you're in the in the West. Or like uh, last year, Montreal was kind of, uh, you know, phony. So you might get a one series where you catch a break, but you're not going to catch you know, three breaks. And so they're going to have to be three or four good teams in seven-game series. Um, I don't see them doing that. I didn't see them doing that last year, and I do think a lot of it comes down to the defense. Fortunately, um, Morazic, um, if it, you know, he's awesome in the playoffs. Um, they set up to have a franchise goaltender. I think his ceiling is best goalie in the league. Um, at some point, you know, not this year, next year, obviously, but like down the line, best goalie in the league. I think that's the ceiling. Um, you know, this going back to your question, like what is their ceiling this year? I'm if they stick with the same defense, honestly, um, I think they'll be hard pressed to make the playoffs. They're getting A plus goaltending right now from both Howard and Morazic. Um, I mean, the goaltending's amongst the best in the league right now. Um, if that doesn't continue, I think they're going to be in real big trouble. Montreal, for example, was um, in the bottom half of the league in possession last year. And, I mean, they made the playoffs because of Price, basically, but he was the best. He, he won the Hart Trophy. Right. Um, and unless one of the goalies turns in a performance like that, I think they're going to really struggle, especially with the, um, the way that Florida's looking and uh, uh, Montreal, obviously, Tampa Bay. Um, the way that playoffs are structured, uh, I think it's going to be a battle for them if they don't make any changes. And honestly... I mean, my personal opinion is if you're going to roll with these defensemen, um, they should really consider tanking. <laughs> well, and, and but here's the thing that you know is kind of a variable that we don't know. Um, if you look at the uh, advanced metrics, I think what Pavel Datsuk last year wasn't he in the top five in wins above replacement for forwards? Oh, he's fantastic. I mean, yeah, he's been one of the best for his entire career. I mean, he's the first line or first. Right, but but he's still even last year at his advanced age, he was still one of the top forwards by that by and obviously people familiar with baseball uh, war. Uh, uh, we're not going to go into an in depth analysis of hockey war, but it but his his his, his stats, his advanced stats are still up there, and they're going to get oh, him back. The player, yeah. They're going to get him back probably what I'm guessing around either Thanksgiving of you know early December, and if they if they get him back. I, that that's the one thing, and I know you and I disagree a little. I think this team's going to make the playoffs. I I just think there's a too much talent on on the on the forward lines, and I think if Datsu comes back and can play eighty percent of what he normally can can do is in the past, and you've got Larkin and Poolkinen, and you to me you really can have four very solid forward lines. You could even. If you split up Datsuk and Zetterberg, and I'm not sure they're going to do that, and you have Datsuk center line, Zetterberg center line, Helm center line, um, Larkin center, I mean, that's pretty strong up the middle, I think. And I, I, I still think the forwards and the play potential play, because I agree with you, I think Mrazek has, it, it could be this year top five in the league. I, I, I'm really high on him. And I, I just think they have enough, based on the fact they took the team that got to the Stanley Cup last year to seven games they sh- they should have won that series um i mean in, in my opinion they they blew it in in the you know game 
four again in, in game four at, at the Joe. I, it's just hard for me to comprehend that a team with those forwards, with that goaltending, that they're not going to make the playoffs. I think that uh, the, the answer lies in the coaching system. So one of the things Babcock did really well was he put a lot um, on the forwards as far as coming deep on the breakout. Um, and uh, Blashville hasn't really done that yet, so they've been stretched a little bit when they're trying to break out. The forwards are near the blue line, whereas uh, last year they had the center circling tight uh, almost to the crease. So if they do make those adjustments, I think it might be sustainable, um, as you're saying, you know, especially riding uh, goaltending. If, if they're able to get A-plus goaltending or A-goaltending, you know, it might be, uh, might be something that works. And then with the emergence of Larkin and Datsu coming back, where Larkin's line can be the third line, uh, they'll win that matchup most nights. Yeah, I mean, so I to me, do, would you agree that the Larkin, Pulkin, and Tatar line has been their best line in the eight games? Yes. Uh, I mean, from a production standpoint, yeah, Larkin's been probably their most productive player. It's a little bit it's a little bit misleading, though, because he's going to struggle um, when they play against good centers. Like, him centering the second line right now might be a lot to ask. Um, but, I mean, it's it's awesome to watch, and it's it's been great. And Pulkin, and I think... Um, uh, a percent from uh, Lee at Motown. He made a good point about how skating's really improved. And I think that goal the other night where he had the breakaway kind of just lurking near the blue line, I thought that was, you know, a good, that's a goal scorer's goal. And yeah. I think that Polkinen's got a great, you know, great, great future as well. The so I do agree with you. The one thing about Polkinen I've been surprised about is, in, I guess skating is part of this, but he's been relentless forechecking. I mean, that line seems to really give the opposing line trouble. They're, they're, they always seem to be like right on top of the play. And I, and I don't think anyone thought that was Pulkin in strength, but I, I think he's got a taste of playing in the NHL and he wants to stay and he's working his ass off. And maybe, you know, Thomas Yurko is going to be playing tonight. Uh, maybe needs to take a page from, from, from Pulkin because it, it just seems like his effort level to me is very high. Yeah. And I, I think he's got a really an elite, an elite skill in his shot. And so if he's going to mix in, you know, that increased uh, better forward checking, better defensive presence, um, playing in all three zones, and there's no reason he can't play on a, a scoring line in, in the NHL. You know, he's, uh, I mean, there's there's players who don't play any defense that play on scoring lines. So a guy like him, if he's going to play that kind of defense, there's no reason. And then they seem to work well together with uh, with Larkin. Um, and, you know, I actually, I do want to see a little bit more of Yurko as well. Um, I understand the kind of the reasoning beh- behind playing Glendening on that third line because I think it's a little bit of an overreaction to how how they're getting hemmed into their own zone. But um, Yurko really needs to play with better um, better center and better forward. His two most common line mates last year, I believe, were Glendening and Miller. Uh, and he needs to play with guys who are going to get him the puck. I mean, he's more of a goal scorer. Playing, playing uh, offensive players with checkers, it's just not going to kind of bring out the best in them. So I do think Yurko has some kind of some untapped potential, and his his numbers, to me, um, I think he can trend towards where Nyquist is. I mean, he's a few years younger. I don't think there's any reason um, where he shouldn't be given those opportunities, though, uh, if they become available. I mean, they're obviously a little bit log-jammed at length, but I do think he's got that kind of ceiling. Well, I appreciate it, Anthony. I think this is probably the most in-depth hockey discussion that in in Detroit that's ever been had. So <laughs> if you're well, listening, I, I, I doubt you're going to get this on 105.1 or 97.1, any discussion about hockey analytics. or uh, I'm guessing most people are just thinking, oh, the Wings are pretty up to a pretty good start and not putting much thought into any of that. So I do appreciate you breaking it down, and we'll check back in a few weeks to see uh, how things are trending. But I do appreciate it. 
Uh, I did. I love this conversation. I do like talking to you guys on Twitter as well because I, I do see the void um, in the Detroit, uh, you know, kind of uh, blogosphere. Uh, so I do appreciate all the conversation with you and, and Topher. And, uh, you know, thanks a lot for the opportunity, and I'd love to come back at some point. No, we'll definitely have you back in a few weeks to see where this team is headed and what the uh, trends are are telling you. So thanks a lot, Anthony. We are going to take a break. When we come back, we will have uh, Ryan Schuling from 92.1 FM in Lansing on the air. We'll talk about him returning to the airwaves next Monday, and maybe we'll talk some more about the Lions. This is a previously recorded episode. Back on the DSR podcast, Jeff Moss, Justin Spiro. Our next guest is an insane human being without much judgment whatsoever. Uh, he used to be on in Grand Rapids on a morning show on WBBL's All Sports Station in West Michigan. I th- what's been about, a, I don't know, a few months ago, he left that station for 92.1, the team in Lansing, to host a show between 1 and 3. His name is Ryan Schuling. Welcome, Ryan. How you doing? Jeff, doing great. I plead guilty to all the above. Why do I keep doing this to myself? I have no idea. Are, are you sure? Have you talked to your attorneys about coming on this show today? I, is this? Are, are, we're, we're broadcasting out of Ferndale. Is that uh, that doesn't interfere with your non compete? Does it? I think we're okay, but at this point, I don't even know what's uh, up and down anymore. So all the papers were signed, so we're not going to. You're not going to have to like go on, you know, another three month break, right? No, no, I don't think so. But then again, the life is full of surprises. The last two time uh, was I should say, yeah, just the last time you guys spoke was when this all hit the, the hit, hit the fan a little bit. I mean, well, have you guys even spoken since? I feel like something well, bad's going to go on. <laughs> we've, I know, I'm not sure we've spoken on the phone, but you've, we've texted. You've, Ryan is the only guy in the state of Michigan that has his own show. It's named after him, and he's never on it. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good luxury to have. I feel like Johnny Carson later in his career. And, you know, he just had Leno and Joe Rivers filling in all the time. But, uh, you know, I'll also say that I think I wear it as a badge of honor that each of you, Justin and Jeff, have been on my show. And I'm not going to back down from that because you guys fulfill a very important service that's uh, a void in the Detroit media. And I'll tell anybody who wants to hear it exactly what I think about that. And it's the reason why I've had each of you on, the great work that you guys do. And I'm not just saying that. Yeah, you're fulfilling a service. You're you're actually doing the job of reporting that a lot of these people out there just kind of use derivative sources for. So I commend you guys for that. And no matter what people think of your style, you get the job done. That's the bottom line. So you were at WBBL. They basically uh, hired someone new, Michael Gray, uh, past failure in the Grand Rapids market to replace you. My... um, my thought on that was that was orchestrated by one of your former co-workers. You ended up at 92.1 in Lansing, and then you did, what, about a week worth of shows. Uh, I was your first guest as Tony Paul in that famous drop now. I wouldn't have had Jeff Moss on as my first guest. Um, and, and Cumulus, your former employer, they they said that you've got to non-compete and you've got to be off the air for six months. It got negotiated down to, I guess, what, three? And you're going to be back on Monday on the air, right? Yeah, and actually, um, as far as I can talk about it, which is not much, uh, there's a lot I could say that I won't. But, uh, yeah, it was negotiated uh, from six down to two, um, uh, basically a compromise arrangement. And as such, 
I'll be back on Monday, November the 2nd, and we will have Mondays with Moss. Jeff will be on, and every Monday after that. I mean, we're going to pick it right back up and get right after it because I think that's what the show's about. I think that's what I have to do. And anything short of that, I think, would be shortchanging and, and cheating my audience, which has come to expect, I think, the, the very best and brightest insights from people that aren't afraid to speak the truth. Well, and that includes Jeff, Jeff Moss. That includes Justin Spiro. And and we appreciate that. But really, honestly, anything short of that in terms of those Mondays with Moss is kind of letting the terrorists win. Now, <laughs> as a guy with a journalism degree and a law degree, I know a thing or two about non-competes. Okay, I you know I've learned quite a bit. And in my understanding and experience, they're very seldomly upheld and I to the letter of the law. Now, it sounds like yours was negotiated down a little bit, cut in half, and I'm glad for you, and I think the market will be better for it. I know you can't say a whole lot about it, but we will say that we're happy that you're going to be back. And it's unfortunate that what is usually overlooked, unless there's a direct competition or a direct threat where it's really going to hurt a company's bottom line, those things are usually waived. I think it was a shame that it was held pretty much as strict as they possibly could. And I just wanted to say on your behalf that I, I thought that was outrageous. And we are happy that that clock has expired. The hourglass is soon empty, and it will be good to have you back. Unless it so starts again because that. of tonight. Which is very possible, but we're, <laughs> right. we're happy to have you back. Now, Ryan, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the lines with you. You know, I don't know if you've been tuning into the podcast at all so far. We covered the Lombardi firing in, in great detail And, you know, we've been on your show and you interview us. We want to ask you a few questions about this. Specifically, do you view this as uh, as a real move for the Lions? Is is this an actual move or just sort of a show move to appease the angry mob at this point? Well, I think Jeff used the term earlier, window dressing, and and that might very well be what it is. Uh, I was there. Uh, right outside the elevator with North Turner, offensive coordinator, and all the Vikings assistants. They're glad-handing. They're slapping five. They're yucking it up. And in comes poor Joe Lombardi. And why he ever got in the same elevator as those guys, I'll never know. But he looked dejected. He looked like somebody shot his dog. I made the comparison the other day. It looked like, you know, a group of buddies, y'all go to the casino. And every other guy wins big. And then everybody's up, right? But the one guy that took a bath that lost everything was Joe Lombardi. Because, yeah, guys, hey, great. And... That was the last I saw of him. I think I was the last person to actually see him employed. And, it, you know, it's incredible to see the – you would have to think he would have to know after that game that the writing was on the wall. There were already whispers around town uh, that Martha Ford was, was fed up, uh, whatever that's worth. Uh, you know, at some point you have to make some kind of a change. It's not like the offense being a problem was new. We covered that the offense is just as big of a problem this year as it was last year. Where do you see Jim Caldwell going long-term? I mean, obviously he's going to finish out the year short of uh, committing a felony, although that doesn't seem to deter any of their other hires. Where do, you see him go- Where do you see him going forward? Is he the coach in week one next year? I would say no chance, but Justin, you know as well as Jeff and I, that with the Lions, you expect the unexpected. I, I think you had to follow how far up the chain does this decision go. And we have to hope, and again, this is being pretty naive, but that Martha Ford – 90 years old as she is, got fed up enough to where she said, you got to make a move. Because something changed in the time that Jim Caldwell addressed the media at 1230 yesterday and then 430. So within a four-hour window, he changed his mind. He, he, he said the term, we continue to evaluate things. Who are we? Was that Martin Mayhew and Tom Luan? Was it Martha? Was it her passing down orders to Mayhew and Luan and then 
derivatively to Caldwell. I, I can't believe that at 1230, he became indignant with the media, walked out after 11 minutes of talking to Josh Katzenstein and Dave Burkett and Kyle Meinke and said, there will be no changes. I'm not answering any more questions. Oh, but by the way, at 4.30, four hours later, I had this complete change of heart and philosophy. We're getting rid of three coaches. Something doesn't add up. And, you know, there's 101 things wrong with this franchise, and one of the things that we've hit on repeatedly over the years is the tone deafness of it. And it goes on many layers at many levels. Jim Caldwell acting like the fans are stupid, as you just mentioned, saying that this was his call hours after he said no changes would be made, trotting out Matt Millen year after year, hiring Matt Millen's underling to run the team who is still there. We still have a direct tie to the Millen era. Uh, There's a tone deafness that really it's gotten to the point where it's so bad that it extends to the significant others of these football players and members of the team uh, management where you have Kelly Stafford continuously going after the fans. And, and you know who hasn't get as much, gotten as much attention has been the wife, or excuse me, fiance of Adrian Waddle, who I have seen at the last couple of games wearing a custom Lions jersey that says future misses on it with his number 66. <laughs> now, I wish he wore number 69. It, well, yeah, that would have been hilarious. It, it future been. misses 69. <laughs> future misses 69 would have been nice. Fake no. man, or excuse me. I don't know why I call him fake. Uh, virginal Manatee, Scott Anderson would have got a kick out of yeah, he was, he uh, 69. That would actually, they would have actually discussed sports if that was uh, a, a real thing there. <laughs> but, Ryan, i, I got to tell you. Well, and, I, I want to make one point real quick before we yeah, get off that. You know, because I think it's a, it's kind of a... This, no, a, this is a story with her, but go uh, ahead. Well, yeah, we'll get, it's kind of like a, fits in with the, the way that the, the, the family members discuss the fans, how Golden Tate earlier in this year like lectured the fans how they needed the support. It's almost, And I've been saying this for years. The Lions are not a normal professional sports organization. And there needs to be some sort of handbook. There needs to be some sort of seminar. When you get drafted by the Lions, when you become the head coach of the Lions, if they fire Mayhew and you become the new general manager of the Lions, this is... This is a team that is so bad. The history is so atrocious. You can't just enter and say whatever you want. You can't just treat the fans like normal fans of any other professional sports organization. You have to act like they've survived genocide. Like You have to come into the franchise with sensitivity training. And, yeah. and and it's insane to me that they've never learned this, that the history of – it's just so bad and so awful that everyone the, – the standard line should be, I'm thankful that, you know, we, that we still have fans, that there's still 60,000 people coming to Ford Field, that you're all still wearing – it should be kissing the ass of this fan base instead of attacking it. And it should be something that should be come on from top down. That do never attack, and, and Caldwell fell, fell for the same thing the other day, which you mentioned at the press conference. He got mad at the press because they, he said, You're asking the same questions every week. Well, if you lose every week, if you're bad year after year, if you're terrible decade after decade, what do you expect? And I don't understand why that mindset has not been institu- instituted down there at, at Allen Park and Ford Field, Ryan. Well, Jeff, you hit on a key point, and I think you know you, you chase this up the ladder far enough. You and I have experienced it now for going on 40 years or whatever. The only head coach the Lions have ever had that has appeared in a Super Bowl as a head coach 
was Bobby Ross for the San Diego Chargers back in 94 against the 49ers. So you don't even have any kind of link to the past for a coach that was washed up. There was some talk, you might remember this, Jeff, that the Lions might be going after Bill Parcells and that he might be interested in coming to Detroit, one of the original kind of building block franchises in the NFL. But, but something happened on the way to making that happen where that all got short-circuited. Now, you proposed, and I think this makes sense for a lot of reasons, considering his team just went down to 1-6 and six last night. You bring John Harbaugh into the Lions, and all of a sudden the culture changes. He's won a Super Bowl. He's got family ties and roots here. But, but how do you make that happen? How do you get from point A to point B? Who's the general manager to come in to make that decision, that very sound decision? It's just uh, the idiocy of this franchise over how many years, 58 now, it, it's just mind-boggling. And I know, Jeff, you try to put it in the words on the sports rec. It's getting very hard to do to quantify the ineptitude of this franchise in any amount of words. Well, nobody's John Harbaugh is not coming here. Nobody with a pedigree. The only the only people who are going to come here are people who are getting their first opportunity at a job like a Marinelli or a Schwartz, and they what mm-hmm. they have nothing to lose because they're not sure if they're ever going. You know, they got to they got to take the job because you got to get your foot in the door in the NFL as a head coach or someone like Caldwell, who nobody else was going to hire. Nobody with any gravitas is going to come here because they know that it's run by Tom Luan, people like Bill Keenest, these lifers, these people who have been down there since the 80s, and you can, you can list these people off, their names. All they care about is self-preservation. They don't give a shit if the Lions ever win a Super Bowl. I mean, yeah, I guess they care, but their, their main focus is making sure that they stay employed. So Harbaugh is never, you know, John Harbaugh is never coming here unless you got a new owner or the whole franchise is gutted. And they say, here, John, you are going to run the franchise. You're going to hire a GM. You're going to hire the scouts. You're going to hire the people who are in the uh, PR department, the marketing. Because if you don't, this cesspool that is the Detroit Lions is going to drag you down too. And if, if you recall, Jeff, going back to Bobby Ross, he had that power and authority, and it backfired to a certain degree, and it was a main reason why William Clay Ford decided to go in a different direction with Millen. He did not want to give that autonomy to a head coach also in that position of making decisions on player personnel. And, of course, Bill Parcells famously said, if you expect me to cook the meal, i got to be able to shop for the groceries. If they didn't want to replicate that model as they had with Bobby Ross, and they were going to give it to somebody like Parcells, and you're absolutely right. They're not going to give that to John Harbaugh either. And I just the, the biggest thing I'm curious about is if we're realistic about it, and it's still Martha Ford's team going into next season, what direction does she go in? How far is she willing to go? I've seen the term out there, is she more Firestone than Ford? I don't know. I don't know if anybody of us know exactly what's on her mind or, or how much she's willing to do in order to make a competitive product appear on the field. I don't know. Well, if she's still listening, she's still she's got to be listening to Lawan. She doesn't know anything about football. She's got to be right. taking her her cues from him. So if he's still there, and I've said this over and over and over, until you cut the head off, uh, you're still you're still going to have the same situation. And to me, you can talk about Caldwell, you can talk about Mayhew, until Tom Luan is no longer in that organization, and it probably is going to mean the Ford you know daughters force a sale. Nothing is ever going to change. So, anything you haven't been on the air for a couple months. Anything else you want to you want to get in before we uh, take our last break, Ryan? 
<laughs> I appreciate you guys Anything having off me your on. Chest? It was nice, and I'll be sure to return the favor going forward. Looking forward to having uh, Jeff on as usual on Mondays, and Justin checking in with his great reporting as well. Just want to reemphasize to your listeners, you guys do a great job. And it doesn't necessarily have to go by textbook definitions of who's accredited media. There's a lot of misconceptions about that and that a blog can't really be an effective reporter, whereas I think you guys do some of the best work in Detroit, and I look forward to reading more of it as the, the days and months go on. All right, well, I will hopefully talk to you around one thirty on Monday, and by 3 p.m., hopefully you're still employed. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. All right. All we right. are going to take one last break. We're going to come back and talk about maybe the Pistons for five, ten minutes with Jasper Apollonia. That is his real name. And we will be back in two or three minutes. Thank you. This is a previously recorded episode. Last segment of the DSR podcast, whatever we're calling this, DSR Radio. I, we need to come up with a name, I guess. Yeah, I said almost bald versus evil, but um, I like that. Except for I don't think I don't think Henson would be too appreciative when he finally comes to his senses and realizes he's never getting back into Detroit radio, and we've kind of like stolen the name of the show, and he wants back in. I wanted to have him on today because I really wanted him to talk about the one hundred five one stuff, uh, hiring. Drew Sharp permanently. We didn't really get to that. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. Yeah, he'll be our media correspondent uh, next week. I like yeah. that idea. Yeah, except for one thing, he still wants back in. So I doubt he was. He's gonna. He'll join us. But who is joining us is someone who uh, obviously doesn't have any plans of ever being in the Detroit market. Or if he did, he's an idiot. He attends Syracuse University in the broadcast slash journalism um, school, I guess. His name is real, Jasper Apollonia. Jasper, welcome. Oh, it's real and it's spectacular. That joke would have killed at 105.1, <laughs> I tell you. Yeah, Maz is on the floor right now, rolling yeah, over in dying. pain. What, what are Literally, your, uh, he's, he's having a heart attack. What are your top three or four considerations for options of changing your name if you ever want to make it in sports media? Because you're not going to make it. Do you have like a uh, list that you're gathering? Cause we, by the way, oh, we're yeah. never no, going to get to the Pistons, I, obviously. Yeah, but okay. listen, we, yeah. No, well, with Jasper Apollonia, you you got uh, to think of some options. You know what I think so, you should go what, with, Jasper? What's that? Ryan Field. That's, gotta, that's ah, like that. kind of catchy. <laughs> I don't think anyone's using yeah. it. Yeah, so I, I, I like this. It's good. I, I might. I'm considering uh, uh, Robert Costas, um, Marvin Albert as well. How about, so I, how about I Rob are... Rob Otto? I don't think anyone's using yeah. that these days. <laughs> All right, come on. I'm here for a reason. Let's. Talk okay, Jasper, we're going to get the only the only reason you're here, you're here for a reason. Right Can you give us specific details about your sex life with Paige? Um. Yeah. All right. No, the real reason. The you're real here. reason we're here to discuss the it's Pistons. A joke. He's uh, dating a model that's way above his league. But uh, you are you are the official, unofficial Detroit sports rag podcast, Detroit Pistons correspondent, and you got that not only because you're intelligent, but by default, you're the only one that really even cares about the Pistons these days. So as such, I'm going to start right in. Bill Simmons has covered it. The line in Vegas right now, the over under for the Detroit Pistons win total this season is thirty three point five. Where are you at with that? Um, I, this, is, this is something I would take the over on. And I, I, unlike in years past, I think there's a very good reason to think so. 
Uh, this is a team that has some some really good young talent. Uh, this is a team that has depth that they haven't had in years before. They have a good coach. Some would some would say a great coach. Uh, at the very least, uh, one of the better coaches working right now. They have, uh, and and again, there's there there is something to be excited about here. They, they've got good players in Reggie Jackson, who was really really good after Greg Monroe was lost for the season, and it was just him and Andre Drummond running the pick and roll. They they both were outstanding. Uh, guy put up all star level numbers. When Brandon Jennings comes back, they are going to have a good amount of shooting depth. This team can do things that the last couple of years we haven't been able to see from the Pistons. They can shoot. There are multiple legitimate threats on this team. Who are so from who outside? Are the, who are the guys who they brought in this year? I know they brought in a white guy. Um, not familiar with his Deep name. Blake. What's his name? No, no, no. The other white guy. Ursan European. Ilyasova. Who? Ilyasova. Ursan Ilyasova. Yeah, from the box. He, is he making that up, Justin? No, that's a real person. Oh, that's no, a real I, person? I, yeah, oh, okay. He's gonna, yeah. He's going to play. No, he's bit. my cousin. Is he, is he starting? Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, Ursan Ilyasova will be starting. He'll be the starting power forward for this team. I, I look at him probably taking more of an outside stretch four role. I think he's going to be more of a, a Ryan Anderson type this year. Um, he, he's not a guy who's going to go inside and bang with, with bigs. He is. Must be said, he's not a great defensive player, but there are things where you look at, uh, you know, Andre Drummond last year, and this is a statistic that'll surprise a lot of people. Kawhi Leonard won Defensive Player of the Year last year, sixth in uh, in, uh, defensive win shares, which basically says how many wins did a player contribute to their team based on their defense. He was sixth in defensive win shares last year. You know who was number seven? I'm going to guess Drummond. Andre Drummond. And so that's Andre Drummond now, with a, a corpse on defense and Greg Monroe. Now, I want to talk about Andre Drummond, so it's the perfect segue. I thought it was interesting. I read a lot into it. I'm curious for your thoughts that Andre Drummond, if he's in the selfish boat, could have signed a max contract extension this past offseason that would have locked him in, guaranteed his money. He agreed to forego that until next year. The Pistons have been open with him. It's been a publicly acknowledged fact that they will be paying him the max when uh, this season is concluded. Of course, Drummond is taking that risk of he could always tear his ACL, have some type of traumatic injury, and then lose that deal. Do you put any stock into Andre Drummond putting his his faith in the Detroit Pistons' direction, in, in the, their direction as an organization? I think that said a lot about what he thinks of Van Gundy and where they're headed, that he was willing to take that personal risk to help the team big picture. I, I absolutely agree. And it is, uh, it's something for both sides that they came together. And again, I, I'm going to just straight off, off the bat say, I don't have any inside sources in the Pistons organization, but from what I can tell and what's been reported, this is a mutual uh, understanding by, by both parties here. Drummond is going to get paid. He's going to get paid next summer. He wants to be in Detroit. What this does for the Pistons, and, and this is really the thing where uh, it, this is a long-term, like you said, boon, because next year the Pistons, if, if they so choose to, are going to have $30 million 
in free cap space before re-signing Andre Drummond. Now, since they have his bird rights, which basically means if you've been with the team for a certain number of years, they can re-sign you in order to go over the cap. So what the Pistons can do next year is they can go out and they can get a max player. Do I think that's necessarily going to happen? Probably not. Well, but the problem with that is the same thing that's always... spend some money and then re-sign Drummond without having to fear going over the luxury tax. But the problem is is that nobody's ever wanted to come here. And as a matter of fact, it's always been people going out the other way, whether it's Allen Houston or Grand Hill. you got to get someone who's willing to take your money, and nobody's been really willing to do that with the Pistons as long as I've been a fan of the team. Well, I think Drummond is, is the first really franchise player that this team has had in, in a long time that has wanted to be here and has taken risks to be here. He is taking a risk, like Justin said, in foregoing a big contract this year. He is. Again, if he tears now, I'm of the personal belief if Andre Drummond tears his ACL, uh, the Pistons will still probably resign him for a max or close to the max. He's simply too talented of a player to let go. He's too talented of a player to mess around with in terms of where, you know, in terms of salary years. You want that guy to be happy because he is the future of this franchise. He is. So you're talking about a Dan Cleary like sort of back channel deal where you will bring you back no matter what happens. You're getting you're getting a, a contract one way or another, even if we can't put it in writing yet. Exactly. Exactly, and and they've publicly said basically as much. So this is a good thing for the Pistons, and it's not a cause for concern whatsoever. If anything, I think it's actually an affirmation of Stan Van Gundy and his skills as a coach and his skills as a GM. I think it's an affirmation that, again, a a young 22-year-old kid wants to play basketball in Detroit. That, that says something. It does say something about this organization, and it says that, at the very least, the star player feels as though this organization is moving in the right direction and wants to help them win. And that's something that we see a lot in, in the NBA and the NFL, where guys want to go out and they want to get their money. And then, again, winning is secondary. It is a business, and I don't find any fault in that belief, but... When Andre Drummond is willing to put his career and his, and his financial means on the line, he's not going to make more money next year. He'll make the same, right. relatively. And so what he's doing is he's, he's trying to make this team better. So you, you obviously think this team will make the playoffs this year, correct? Um, it's tough. I think this is a, a, a team that can finish anywhere between 35 and, like, 42 wins. Uh you know, there, but there's a huge leeway in there in terms of making the playoffs. I don't think Milwaukee will make the playoffs, and I want to put that out there right now. I, I think they are going to leapfrog Milwaukee, and I think they're going to leapfrog Boston um, and Brooklyn, obviously, which is looks like they're probably going to be the worst team in the NBA this year outside of the Sixers. So what, what two things would you say? A, there's, there's a lot of open spots in that Eastern Conference playoff, and I think the Pistons at the very least, are going to be in the discussion for that 7-8 seed when it's all said and done. What two things have to happen for them to make the playoffs? Is it something like Stanley Johnson outperforming what 
a normal rookie uh, in his slot? Would no, do, a- actually, if I was going to say, if anything, <laughs> more of what the, happened last year is actually what needs to happen. And by that, I mean when, when, uh, when the Pistons made the trade for Reggie Jackson, at first he was not good. Uh, he's not a strong outside shooter, and he struggled. The team went 1-10 at the beginning. When Monroe went out for the season, uh, there was, what, 16 games, I believe. There was a 16-game stretch. Reggie Jackson averaged 19 points and 11 assists. So he also shot about 35% from, three point, from the three-point line. So if he can duplicate, not even get that high, you know, 19 and 11, if he can just go 17 and 8 and shoot 33% from three, You've got guys in Ilyasova, who's a career 37% three-point shooter. You've got guys like Steve Blake, a career 38% three-point shooter. These are Brandon Jennings, even. When Brandon Jennings comes back, they don't need him to be the guy who's slashing to the lane and, and filling it up. If he is not athletically what he used to be, that's okay. They can put him in the corner and have him shoot threes. He can play a little off-two guard. This team is going, is going to look offensively and defensively a lot different than last year. A lot of the places are pieces are still there, but they're going to be able to move. They're going to be able to run the floor. Like we thought they might be able to do with Josh Smith in the lineup. And unfortunately that just wasn't possible. The spacing didn't work. The spacing I believe will work this year. I believe the defense will take a step forward, especially with Jackson Caldwell Pope in the, in the backcourt. Andre in the front court, I think, is actually going to improve by just having Monroe out there. So there's definitely a lot of upside on this team. There's definitely a lot of reasons to be not excited, but there's a lot of reasons to pay attention. And there haven't been in the last couple of years. All right. Well, I'm going home now to watch the uh, Red Wings and Pistons. Spear already took off with his pregnant wife, Lynn, to go down to the Joe to watch the Wings. I think we have met our fairness doctrine for the week to give Pistons ample time uh, <laughs> as the redheaded stepchild in this town. I swear to God, I know, I know you're up. I, up. I wish, I wish, I just wish somebody other than me gave a crap. Uh, uh. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's really unreal. I mean, I know you're in upstate New York, but being on the mean streets of uh, Ferndale and the suburbs of Detroit, you really wouldn't know that the Pistons were starting the regular season tonight. It's like... they. I, I, I think once Andre Drummond and Reggie Jackson start running that pick and roll, and if Stanley Johnson can do a lot of the things that this team has said they think he can do, I think you're going to get some interest. You only, you, they got to start winning, because if they don't get off to a good yep. start and they get off to another horde beginning like they did last year until they wave Josh Smith, the apathy will once again set in. It's it's imperative, I believe, for at least their business model to you know get off to an over five hundred start to or something to generate some interest because in a town where the Lions are basically dead, uh, the Tigers just came off a horrible season, and the Red Wings are you know around five hundred. There's even with you know kind of an opening for the Pistons. Um, there's just nothing going on. I haven't heard anything. So hopefully they'll get off to a good start and. Um, There'll be something to watch at night on Fox Sports Detroit that's somewhat entertaining with this uh, very young team. Anything else yeah, to add? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, this is, uh, 
again, but like you said, they have to start winning. And that is something that they did once they waived Josh Smith, and that's something that they did once they uh, once Greg Monroe got injured and was out for the season. So you look at this this team without Smith and Monroe in the lineup, and it's a it's a good squad. It, it's that's all you have to say. They're a team without Monroe and Smith that won most of their games. If you look over the last five or six years, the team is at its best when they are completely out of it and they're just ruining any chance for a top three pick, you know, lottery-wise. So maybe they just need to all be... Maybe they need to be hypnotized to think that the season's already over and that the only thing they can accomplish <laughs> right now is to screw up their, 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 their uh, well, ping-pong ball people odds. Forget, people forget they had worked their way back into playoff contention once they got rid of Smith, and then Brandon Jennings went down, and the season kind of went off the rails at that point, but... They were right. I thought they were going to be competing we, we, for a playoff spot. You and I, you and I, were convinced they were making the postseason in what February at some point. We're I'm I'm still convinced that if if Brandon Jennings does not go down, that team makes the playoffs. All right. Well, hopefully, I mean, playing, yeah. Hopefully, though, they sorry. will. Hopefully, they will break the string of you know under the Tom Gore's ownership of missing the postseason. Year after year, hopefully it'll be the year they do get into the playoffs and have some sort of interesting team. I appreciate you taking your uh, precious time over there at Syracuse University. I know you're, you know, studying to be the next Matt Derry or Dave Pash or Pash went to Syracuse, right? Has anybody told you you're an asshole? Uh, not in the last eight minutes, but there's nobody in the room <laughs> except for Jessica producing and. She hasn't told me, but uh, yes, I am an asshole. It's well known. Okay. It's on the masthead of the website, Jasper. Nobody's confused of course, of about course. that. How could I forget? All right. Thanks for joining us, Jasper. Uh, we'll talk in the next few weeks, catch up and see where the Pistons are. I want to thank Justin for stopping by, even though he was very late. Anthony Ciotti talking about the Red Wings. Ryan Schuling putting his career in jeopardy by discussing uh, his non-compete with us. And I think that covers everything. And Jessica, once again, thank you for producing this train wreck. No, thank you for the interesting trash talk. <laughs> oh, don't don't worry. Once once Ryan's uh, non competes, that's all done. We'll probably have him back on, and next week will be even worse. Oh, all right. Well, thanks for listening. We will be back next Tuesday at five p.m. Uh, to discuss the Lions in London and uh, who the hell else knows what else. So, have a good evening, and thanks for tuning in. This is a previously recorded episode.